Start your morning with the CNN Daily News Briefing. In just three minutes, we'll tell you about the stories that are making headlines around the world. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play the CNN Daily News Briefing or find us in your favorite podcast app. And good evening from Las Vegas. There's breaking news tonight. The president choosing someone to oversee the intelligence community and with it, the nation's security, who has no real intelligence experience. We'll have that story ahead. We begin, though, right here in Las Vegas at a key moment in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. Michael Bloomberg, who is not even on the ballot in this weekend's caucuses in Nevada, will be on the debate stage here tonight, which means that millions of voters who may only know him through the campaign ads he's already spent more than $400 million on will finally get to see how he thinks on his feet. He could be in for some tough questions. There's no doubt about it, about his record with respect to stop and frisk and his alleged sexist comments in the past. He's already taking hits from his other rivals, some of whom say he's not even a true Democrat. Truth is, he's basically been a Republican his whole life. The fact of the matter is he has, he didn't endorse Barack or me when we ran. This is a guy talking about, you know, he's using Barack's pictures like, you know, they're good buddies. I'm gonna talk about his record. Just quickly, that's largely untrue. Bloomberg was a longtime Democrat who changed party affiliations to run for mayor of New York and then became an independent before finally returning to the Democratic Party. Though he did not endorse President Obama in 2008, he did in 2012. Bloomberg is also taking hits from Elizabeth Warren and frontrunner Bernie Sanders, who both say that he's trying to buy the nomination. But instead of focusing on that, a Sanders spokesperson today picked a fight with Bloomberg over which 78-year-old candidate was healthier just a day after Senator Sanders, who recently had a heart attack, told me he would not be releasing his complete medical records. Do you think the American people deserve to know more about his health going forward? I think that the American people deserve to know exactly as much as every other candidate has released in this race currently and historically. And what you're seeing right now is really reminiscent of some of the kind of smear, kind of a skepticism campaigns that have been run against a lot of different candidates in the past, um, questioning where they're from, um, aspects of their, uh, um, their, their lineage, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really telling, given that none of the same concern is being demonstrated for Michael Bloomberg, who's the same age as Bernie Sanders, who has suffered heart attacks in the past. Well, the Bloomberg camp fired back, pointing out that Michael Bloomberg has never had a heart attack, but he has had a stent inserted in 2000, 20 years ago, to open a blocked coronary artery. The spokesperson has walked back her earlier remarks, but it was the political story of the day today and perhaps the night as well. Joining us now is CNN political director David Chalian. David, just how much criticism do you think Bloomberg is going to face tonight? Uh, and, and not only, uh, obviously, questions from the moderators, but from the other candidates. Yeah, I would say a lot. I think he's going to be uh, the center of attention, uh, even though it's Bernie Sanders uh, who's in the driver's seat right now for this nomination race, is the is the clear leader in the race right now, Anderson. But Bloomberg is the new entrant, and he is stepping out from behind the television screen, if you will, of all the paid ads that has been his main presentation to voters to date and is going to stand on this stage uh, as an equal uh, with his fellow competitors for the first time, and they are eager to take him on. I mean, just last night, uh, you saw when you were moderating those town halls, I mean, uh, Sanders and Buttigieg and Klobuchar all went after him. Uh, they are eager to try and bring him down to the reality of being a candidate in the mix. 
It, it's going to be so fa- focus, uh, so fascinating tonight. I mean, Bloomberg has not been on a debate stage at this level ever. Um, and it's been quite a while since he's frankly been in the rough and tumble of, of a daily political uh, race. It, it's it's it, if Bloomberg is the sole focus, Sanders then arguably would be a beneficiary of that if not if you know if it takes all the attention off him uh, and other candidates challenging his policies or his proposals. It's such a good point, Anderson, which is why I'm eager to see what what do the likes of Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, uh, are they going to just not spend their time taking on the current frontrunner, Bernie Sanders, because they're so focused on the rise of, of Michael Bloomberg. And if they and if they're dividing their time, is it as uh, effective uh, of a chance to try and halt uh, Sanders momentum? I, I do think you raise a really good point, especially, as you know, that more moderate side of the equation, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Biden, Bloomberg, it's all splitting up a, a big chunk of the party right now. Uh, they, th- somebody is looking to consolidate that. And uh, the folks who have been in the race are trying to make sure it's not Michael Bloomberg. Uh, but you can't, you can't just step away from Bernie Sanders and let him uh, run away with this thing without being touched. The, the sparring that took place today between uh, Sanders and Bloomberg campaigns over their respective health histories What's the strategy behind that? I mean, I guess it began with with the the Sanders spokesperson this morning on CNN's New Day, uh, alleging that that Bloomberg had had heart attacks, plural. Uh, the campaign says that that's just simply not the case. Uh, they're both 78 years old. What does this conversation get them? Yeah, I, I thought the Bloomberg campaign response uh, was really interesting, Anderson. I think gets at a key strategic point. Not only did they say that's not true, uh, and obviously the spokesperson said she misspoke, but they said it was Trumpian in what they were doing. And this is the Bloomberg campaign strategy in how to deal with Sanders right now. They're trying to paint him as sort of of the ilk of Donald Trump, more a divider than a uniter uh, within the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, they were going on a frontal attack a couple days ago about some of his online supporters and and some of their uh, bullying tactics online. Uh, Now they were trying to say that they deliberately went on and and was lying about Michael Bloomberg having a heart attack and calling it very Trumpy. I think this is a clear strategy from the Bloomberg campaign to try and halt some of that Sanders momentum right now by sort of painting him as an outsider and divider, which, of course, is precisely the opposite message Sanders is trying to paint for himself. Yeah, David Jelly and David, thanks very much. One more perspective now from our political professionals, David Axrod, Van Jones and Gloria Borger. Uh, Gloria, it's impossible to overstate just how much the dynamic of the race could shift tonight, whether it's in Bloomberg's favor or, or against him. Well, it's going to shift dramatically because what we're going to see tonight, and I think David was talking about this, we're going to see a public vetting of Michael Bloomberg. And the other candidates there, including Bernie Sanders, are going to try and disqualify him while he is going to try and come out behind uh, the $400 million curtain of glossy ads and introduce himself to the American public. The public really doesn't know who he is or how he will answer questions or how he will stand up against uh, these other candidates. I was speaking to a source in the campaign today who said he is ready for everything that's going to be thrown at him, but they're just a little nervous that he doesn't get aggravated uh, by all of these attacks on him because he is not used to it and he's going to get it. Yeah, David, I mean, there's plenty of billionaires who uh, are not used to having people 
basically right. go after them and, and you know, nitpick and critique uh, not only, you know, very understandably their past, but also, you know, most recent comments they've made. What does a win, David, do you think look like for, for Bloomberg tonight? I think uh, if he walks out under his own power, that would be good. <laughs> I mean, I think he's going to he's going to uh, look. First of all, you mentioned it earlier. I, one of the things that I'd be concerned about if I were his team is all the candidates on the stage are in midseason form. They've been through eight debates. They've all gotten better over the course of those debates. They're accustomed to the pressures of being in these debates, although this one is perhaps more pressureful than the others. Uh, and he comes in without any spring training. And he's never been a particularly noteworthy debater or speaker. And now he's going to be under siege. Uh, and I think that's very difficult. One thing that I would say, though, uh, about where all of the darts are going to be thrown, uh, if you were a moderate candidate, one of those center-left candidates, I'm not sure that the way that you get to where you want to go is by going after Mike Bloomberg. Uh, the way you may uh, get to where you want to go may be by going after Bernie Sanders, because the question right now in the Democratic Party is, is Sanders going to run away with this nomination because the moderate wing of the party is divided, much as Donald Trump ran away with it in 2016. So you want to score some points with those center-left voters. It may be better to focus your attention on Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg and allow Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to focus on Bloomberg. Then I'm wondering what do you make of that. I mean, as much as Sanders you know, has a lot at stake tonight— um, certainly, if 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 everybody is focusing on on Bloomberg, yeah. uh, it does essentially let him uh, continue the the momentum. You know, we're in this ph- uh, phenomenal period in the history of the Democratic Party. <clears throat> the mainline Democrats, the ones who who've been a part of the party, loyal to the party, are being squeezed out by a bottom up insurgency from the left outside the party. You know, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. Um, powered by millions of people, and now by this uh, top-down incursion from the right, uh, which is uh, Bloomberg, who is, you know, sometimes a Democrat, sometimes not. And so you have these two forces, uh, both kind of outside the Democratic Party, that, are, that now are dominating the discussion, uh, Sanders and Bloomberg. Now, Sanders would be quite happy for everybody to go beat up on Bloomberg because he is just sailing to the nomination. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we're ignoring this, but this guy is at the top of the polls. I was talking to a cousin of mine uh, in Tennessee who said he was for Biden, but Biden looks like he's very weak. So he switched from Biden, a moderate, to Bernie. He's picking up black votes, picking up votes everywhere. The best thing to happen to Bernie Sanders right now is Bloomberg coming in and absorbing all the fire from the moderates, if that happens tonight. Um, Gloria, Sanders spokeswoman walked back the claim about Bloomberg's health today. I mean, is that really a conversation the Sanders campaign wants to be having right now? I mean, he had promised to release his medical records. Uh, he has now said he's not going to release any more than he already has, which is three doctor's notes. And we're going to talk to son, Dr. Sanjay Gupta about, about that a little bit later on. There's a lot of information in those notes. Um, but, you know, is that the debate that Sanders wants? No, not not at all. I mean, do you want to have the debate uh, between septuagenarians about whose heart is in worse shape? I don't think so. I don't think that does Bernie Sanders any good at all. And it, quite frankly, doesn't do Michael Bloomberg any good at all. And I think that this was a mistake on the part of the Sanders campaign. They, they did back off. But you have to pay attention to the fact uh, that these uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders had a heart attack just months ago, 
And look at him. He looks great. He looks terrific on the trail. But I think when people are making a decision about the president, they need information. There's a precedent here for no information, and that's Donald Trump. And that is why folks now say, well, you know, I've already released a lot more than normal. I, it, it used to be, uh, even when John McCain was running and he was a cancer survivor, you know, thousands of, of pages of, of doctor's uh, notes. And we're not seeing that anymore. And I think it's an unfortunate trend that honestly was started uh, with Donald Trump. Yeah. We're going to pick up this uh, during the break. Uh, after the break, uh, we're going to work on the audio issues with David Axelrod. I apologize for that. Also, when we, we, when we come back tonight, a closer look at Mike Bloomberg's past debating record for clues to what may happen uh, tonight. And later, the breaking news, the president's choice to fill a job that was created after 9-11 to prevent another 9-11, how his pick differs from all the distinguished and highly experienced intelligence professionals who've held the job before. We'll have that ahead. We're talking about tonight's debate and how different it may be from the eight that have come before it. Bernie Sanders, the frontrunner facing Mike Bloomberg, the newcomer, seasoned campaigners like Sanders, Warren and Biden facing someone who hasn't even debated in more than a decade. That said, whatever he lacks in recent experience, Mike Bloomberg also brings considerable talent to bear as a look at his past debate performance shows. We're now on that from Randy Kay. Would you like to now apologize for or recant any or all of these four very interesting statements. Mark, you've taken them all out of context. Are they all accurate? Uh, they were certainly said, but, uh, but out of context. And it's a typical smear when the time gets close. That was Michael Bloomberg back in 2001, debating his opponent in the race for mayor of New York City. Now, almost two decades later, the stakes are much higher. He's both confident and arrogant on the debate stage uh, because he does have such a command of facts. Debate expert Brett O'Donnell says it's critical that Bloomberg connect with the audience instead of just spewing facts. He thinks if he unloads a bunch of facts and figures, he'll get the audience to make a decision just like he would make as a business person. The problem with that is, is it's devoid of any contact and connection with an audience. O'Donnell says it's clear from watching Bloomberg debate that it's not something Bloomberg enjoys. Despite that, O'Donnell says during debates, Bloomberg manages to stay low key and tries not to do any harm. Bloomberg looks to avoid any major conflict, though he still gets combative with opponents. Well, I think everybody does know what my opponent stands for. He stands for complaining. He stands for identifying problems and never coming up with solutions. And that's different than governing. It's easy to be a critic. It is very hard to lead. In the past, Mike Bloomberg has always uh, returned fire when fired upon. So he is not afraid to counterpunch his opponents. I think he functions under the, under the premise that the best defense is a good offense. O'Donnell says Bloomberg is known to fire back, like when his opponent suggested he made charitable contributions only to get something in return. Here's Bloomberg putting his opponent in his place. I'm very proud of our philanthropy. And just let me get this. He's getting money to his campaign and I'm giving money out unless I missed what you described. <laughs> don't expect Bloomberg to raise his voice, O'Donnell says, and don't expect him to make things easy for the moderators either. This was him in 2009 answering a question about diversity in Spanish, much to the moderator's dismay. But, but do you think Latinos are... Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. In fairness, I'm sorry. With some downplaying expectations, 
We'll see if Michael Bloomberg comes ready to play. Randy Kay, CNN, New York. Well, there's certainly plenty to talk about for the candidates tonight and for us as well. Back with us is David Axrod, Van Jones, and Gloria Borger. David, you see Bloomberg's past approach to debates. Um, what are you anticipating tonight? Again, he, he hasn't done this for quite a while. Yeah, well, I think you'll see some of that. I think the greatest challenge for him is that he has kind of reinvented himself for this race. He walked away from the stop and frisk policy that he defended for a very long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, he has now... He's fashioning himself as a big, uh, as a very close ally of President Obama, which which wasn't true. They worked together. They weren't by any means close uh, buds. And there are a series of things like that that uh, he is trying to clean up for purposes of this Democratic race. I think the leading indicator in presidential races is, is authenticity. One of the reasons Bernie Sanders is doing so well is because he's been saying the same thing for 50 years. Uh, and Bloomberg now is stepping out from behind these ads and he's going to have to defend uh, some of those past statements and, and, and convincingly persuade people that he has gone through a metamorphosis on some of these things. I think that's very difficult and he's going to be hammered by his opponents on these points. Van, I mean, if this becomes a race of Sanders versus Bloomberg, it, I mean, that it's <laughs> you couldn't pick two more different people. Mm -hmm. uh, Sanders is the exact uh, Bloomberg is the exact kind of person Sanders is running against, yeah, yeah, it, even it, before it, Bloomberg was in the race. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's been talking about the billionaires, the billionaires, the billionaires, and now he's going to have like one of the biggest billionaires in the world on stage with him. Um, you know, I think uh, for a Bloomberg, uh, in addition to what um, Axelrod was saying, you know, there's something about not just debating on stage. There's something about those town halls. There's something about those living rooms. You know, you watched Elizabeth Warren uh, just become an incredibly good presence and incredibly good on the mic and the debate stage. Why? Because she was listening for months and months and months to ordinary people. He has not done that, uh, Bloomberg. He has not been in those living rooms. He's, he, so he, he, this is a very, very risky kind of a moonshot move to be like me trying to run a marathon, having not gone to the gym for the past year. You just, it's just some things are just hard to pull off. If he pulls it off, though, if he's able to literally come off the couch and stand with these folks and actually you know, distinguish himself, it's going to be a real, I think, a boost to him. And it's going to be a shock, I think, to the field. But this is, what he's trying to pull off is very, very hard to do. Yeah, I, Gloria, I mean, it is. Van's <laughs> analogy, I think, on the marathon is, is pretty apt. Well, yes. And don't forget, he skipped uh, the first four races. And so he's sort of parachuting in right now uh, at a late date. And in talking to his campaign, what they're saying is a couple things. First of all, not only does he have to introduce himself, but they want him to figure out a way, and I don't know if he can do this, figure out a way to tell his life story. This is, they say, somebody who wasn't born to money, who made his own money, comparing him to Donald Trump, obviously, and they want him to, to tell the American public about where he came from and why he is where he is. And then the other goal they have is that people can see him as a president on that stage tonight. It, 
voters size up people and say, well, is this the person that I can see as presidential? This is the person that I can trust. This is the person who's going to represent me and my interests. And as Van was talking about, that is very diverse in the Democratic Party right now. And so, but he has these big hurdles that, that he's got to cross. And the question is, how does he do it? He's not a warm and fuzzy guy, as we all know. <laughs> so how does he appeal to the public and say, I'm the Pied Piper, follow me. You really should follow me. Yeah. Uh, Glory Borger, Van Jones, David Axelrod. It's going to be a fascinating debate. Go ahead, David. No, I, was gonna, I think he's going to take a page from Biden here it may, and hope that it works better for him and say, I'm the guy who can beat Donald Trump. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm tough yeah. enough. I'm well funded. Right. I'm well fortified. I'm experienced. I think that's what you're going to hear from him tonight. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, coming up, Andrew Yang. He uh, left the, uh, the race after New Hampshire. He has since joined us at CNN as our latest political commentator. We'll talk to Andrew in a moment. So what does each candidate need to do in tonight's debate to maintain viability? As a Democratic presidential candidate, my next guest, Andrew Yang, had plenty of time on the televised debate stage throughout the first stages of the primary uh, battle. And safe to say he has gotten to know most of the candidates pretty well. Andrew Yang left the race after the New Hampshire primary but to prove there is life after politics, he's joined CNN as a political commentator. We're very happy uh, to have him. I'm happy to discuss tonight's debate with him. Andrew, welcome to CNN. Uh, we're very happy that you're that you're joining us. Um, this is obviously the first time that we're going to see Michael Bloomberg on the debate stage. What are your expectations of that? This is essentially the Bloomberg debate, <laughs> Anderson. The fact is the other candidates have had eight debates where they've had their talking points essentially hardwired in. It's almost second nature. Whereas for Mike, this is going to be his first time. Uh, he's not accustomed to getting hostile questioning on a regular basis. He's not accustomed to getting his past comments on sex and race uh, dragged. So it's going to be a real test of temperament and even humility for Mike tonight. Uh, and the question is whether he can take the slings and arrows that are coming his way in stride. That's one of the things, I mean, that people don't realize is being, I mean, running for president, as you well know, it makes you, you get better at it as you go. Going, you know, being in town halls in New Hampshire and Iowa and elsewhere and being on debate stages and, you know, the, it teaches you a certain amount of humility and you're taking questions from all sorts of people and reporters. Mike Bloomberg hasn't done that for a very long time and he's been in a somewhat rarefied ecosphere of a uh, multi-billionaire. Yeah, do, imagine, you think, do you think he, he knows what he's getting into? Well, he has a very, very strong team. Uh, and if I'm his team, I've been coaching him to take hostile questioning with ease and coolness and then pivot to talking points about his record and his message. If I were his team, I'd be playing him like that zen, like, um, music before he gets on the debate stage just to try and <laughs> chill him out. Because the, the uh -huh. big challenge for him you is to You wouldn't go for like Metallica or, you know, Nine Inch Nails or something? No, no, no. He has to try and uh, be presidential and keep his cool through everything. For him, the pitfalls are if he expresses irritation or contempt. And the fact is he's going to have a lot of contempt directed at him. He has to react with the opposite. What does it say to you about the support for Bernie Sanders that... Mike Bloomberg, without actually being in the race, although spending a huge amount on, on television commercials, in you know, two new national polls is right behind, is behind 
Sanders is in the number two spot. The fact that somebody who hasn't even really been running is supposedly, according to these two polls, on the national level, uh, number two, what does that say about the support for Sanders? Well, after all of the attacks that are going to be leveled against Mike tonight, the second target is going to be Bernie because he's the front runner at this point. He's almost certainly going to win Nevada. uh, And the other candidates are going to try and bring down the front runner. I'd expect attacks on Bernie tonight uh, on his electability, his health, uh, the online followers of his that have some bad tendencies, uh, even his family's... uh, financial histories or dealings, like anything is going to be fair game because many of the other candidates are being told that it is not acceptable to have an okay debate tonight, that they have to draw blood on either Mike or Bernie uh, or produce something spectacular in terms of a moment. Because the other candidates can see if Bernie wins Nevada, which he's expected to, uh, it's going to be harder and harder for them to, to make the case. If this boils down to a race between Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg, I mean, it, it, it could not be a more stark. Uh, I mean, it's it sort of you, if you were writing this as a screenplay, you know, the, the guy who's campaigning. These would be the characters. The yes. impact of, <laughs> yeah, the impact of billionaires on our system and to have a billionaire being the one running against him, dropping huge amounts of money in the race. Do you see Sanders supporters I mean, Bernie Sanders has said, Look, he'll support whoever is the the Democratic nominee. Uh, he said that before Bloomberg was in the race, but subsequently he says he still would support Bloomberg. But clearly that would be a, a, a tough pill for him to swallow. And do you think his supporters would, would come out and vote for Bloomberg? Well, I, I think you're right that Bernie and Mike represent in some ways the two extremes of the party. And I think it's going to be tough to galvanize Bernie supporters behind Bloomberg and vice versa. Uh, certainly, I'm going to support whoever the nominee is, and I think that both Bernie and Mike have said they do the same. But it's one thing to say you're going to support the nominee, and it's a- another for your millions of supporters to go out to the polls and fight as hard as they would for you. Uh, so I think this is going to be a real issue for the Democratic Party, and I-, I think there's going to be a lot of soul-searching in the days ahead trying to figure out uh, how to bring the party together, regardless of, of who is the nominee. And of course, you can't rule out the other candidates. But right now, Bernie's the front runner uh, with Bloomberg uh, coming up quickly. Andrew Yang, it's great to have you with us. And uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Anderson. See you soon. It's great to be here. Coming up next, the president's choice uh, for a top leadership job in the intelligence community. The choice is raising some eyebrow, his candidate's lack of experience in intelligence. We'll be right back. Hi, Richard. America's getting back to work. In this new economy, your business needs every advantage to succeed. You need to be smart. And smart companies run on the world's number one cloud business system, NetSuite by Oracle. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over every part of your business, your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, all in one place. Whether you're doing a million in sales or hundreds of millions, NetSuite lets you expertly keep track of every penny. It gives you the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Over 20,000 companies trust NetSuite to make it happen. Make yours one of them. Learn more by visiting netsuite.com slash ac360. From there, you can schedule a tour of NetSuite and get their free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. It's chock full of the top strategies executives are using as America reopens for business. 
Get your free guide and product tour now at netsuite.com slash AC360. As we mentioned at the top of the program, there's breaking news tonight. President Trump says that he will name the current American ambassador to Germany as the next acting director of national intelligence. He's Richard Grinnell, a staunch loyalist to the president and certainly a controversial choice even among some Republicans. Joining me now is CNN's chief White House correspondent, Jim Acosta. So, Jim, what's the thinking behind this move? Because uh, this is not someone with an intelligence background. Capitol Hill covering national security. They're all talking to their sources, and we're all hearing basically one thing, that Rick Grinnell, the current U.S. ambassador to Germany, who's going to be the uh, acting director of national intelligence, uh, may start as soon as tomorrow, uh, was a fierce loyalist, is a fierce loyalist of the president, and is expected to behave as such in this capacity, even though the director of national intelligence position was created in the aftermath of 9-11 to be sort of an apolitical position. But look at the uh, case of the current acting or outgoing acting Director of National Intelligence, Joe McGuire. He testified during the impeachment inquiry uh, that the whistleblower at the center of all of this did the right thing, that he took the right steps in blowing the whistle on the president's phone call with the leader of Ukraine on July 25th. The president obviously didn't like that. And in the words of one former senior White House official I spoke with this evening, uh, who's been keeping tabs on this situation, uh, the president is essentially, and his team is essentially filling the gaps, uh, finding uh, people that weren't uh, viewed as sufficiently loyal uh, and replacing them with fierce loyalists. And that's what's happening right now, Anderson. So if he is just the acting DNI, does he ha- he doesn't have to go through uh, Senate confirmation. How much support does he have among not only members of the administration, but, but uh, congressional Republicans? Well, certainly inside the White House, among the political advisors who talk to the president on a regular basis, around the president on a regular basis, uh, they, they like this pick. Uh, they see Rick Grinnell as being one of them. Uh, but when you talk to a Trump advisor, like I talked to a Trump advisor earlier this evening, Anderson, who said, uh, listen, Rick Grinnell uh, is a polarizing figure. Uh, this is somebody who is, in addition uh, to, you know, being somebody who rubs people the wrong way uh, up on Capitol Hill and diplomatic circles and so on, because he has sharp elbows, no question about it. Uh, according to this one Trump advisor I spoke with earlier this evening, he's viewed as being kind of out of his league when it comes to this position of being the director of national intelligence. I talked to a a senior Republican congressional aide uh, just a short while ago who questioned whether or not uh, Rick Grinnell could actually be confirmed as the permanent director of national intelligence and uh, said to me earlier this evening, Anderson, that this uh, this pick is obviously not going to go over well with some uh, members of, uh, you know, national security committees, uh, related committees up on Capitol Hill. So it remains to be seen how uh, well this pick does. I, I-, I talked to a congressional aide earlier this evening who's compared this uh, to what happened with John Ratcliffe. Remember, John Ratcliffe was picked. The congressman from Tex- Texas was picked to replace McGuire uh, and Dan Coats uh, over the summer, uh, the former director of national intelligence. And when it was found that Ratcliffe had exaggerated some of his bona fides, his nomination was pulled. And the concern is, and it's already bubbling up, Anderson, uh, that Rick Grinnell could go through a similar experience uh, if the White House does not handle this uh, perfectly in the coming days, Anderson. All right, Jim Acosta. Jim, thanks for some perspective on the Grinnell appointment and why it is polarizing. Take a look at the prior intelligence and leadership experience of the men who have held that same position under President Trump. The current acting director, Joseph McGuire, is a Navy vice admiral and former director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Indiana Senator Dan Coats served on the Intelligence Committee. 
And here's the experience level of some of those who held the same jobs since the agency was created in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. James Clapper, an Air Force lieutenant general, ran the Defense Intelligence Agency. Dennis Blair was head of the Navy's Pacific Command. In each case, people steeped in either in the intelligence community itself or in roles overseeing it. Some perspective now from a former Republican presidential candidate and Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum. He's a CNN senior political commentator, also CNN legal analyst, Kerry Cordero, who has served as senior associate general counsel at the office of the director of national intelligence. So, Kerry, first of all, is Ambassador Grinnell qualified to be acting director of national intelligence? He's not, Anderson. This is a pretty outrageous appointment as acting DNI. If we look at the past, the five Senate confirmed individuals who served as director of national intelligence, they had decades of intelligence, military or diplomatic experience. Some of those those different uh, characteristics combined. They were individuals who were uh, extremely knowledgeable about the intelligence community. You know, this is the intelligence community is a 60 billion dollar plus enterprise. It's not something that uh, one just picks up as you go along on the job. And really his qualifications, he's currently the ambassador. So he has a little bit of experience in terms of being a consumer of intelligence. But beyond that, as my understanding of his resume is that he's basically a communications professional and someone who would be more attuned to being the spokesperson for the DNI and not the actual director of national intelligence. Senator Santorum, is that fair? I mean, if you were in the Senate, would you be comfortable with the the appointment even on an acting basis? Uh, You know, look, well, first off, if on an acting basis, I don't have any say in whether the president uh, keeps someone there on an acting basis because there's no confirmation. And and that very well may be what the president has in mind is just to have someone who who's in that position, uh, who has his back. Uh, in, in many respects, uh, but would you, you know, be comfortable with him being the I, DNI look? I have acting, so, I have uh, concerns about about his qualifications. I, I don't think anyone can look at his qualifications and say, well, he's clearly you know the most qualified person for this job. Uh, the question is, you know, what's he what's he trying to accomplish for Donald Trump? And what he's trying to accomplish for Donald Trump, I think, is a couple of things. Number one, uh, I think he's going to be a disruptive force, and he's going to be a disruptive force at, at a time when the president feels like there are people uh, in you know in and around who who have uh, you know, not had his back and not not been fair to him, not not had his back. That's not fair. Have not been fair to him. And 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 so I think you're going to see uh, Grinnell be disruptive. Having said that, you know, the DNI was a position I remember voting on the law that created the DNI. The DNI was created because we had uh, lots of uh, uh, intelligence that was not being shared among agencies. And this was the guy who was going to sit on top and bring everything together. I'm not sure that that's actually what's happened, uh, but that's really what the role is, is to help coordinate intelligence. And and I'm not sure if you look at this guy's, uh, you know, resume, uh, his uh, his ability to sort of work with other people and bring things together and coordinate, uh, I'm not sure that's his strongest, uh, you know, asset. Yeah, Kerry, I mean, if he is a, a disruptor, and, and by all accounts that uh, I think Senator Santorum is, is right about that, uh, that is not the job description necessarily of somebody who brings people together uh, and coordinating intelligence. It's not. The director of national intelligence sits atop the other 16 intelligence community agencies and elements. And the director coordinates the budget and coordinates policy. He's not responsible for the actual operational activities. And so much of the role of the DNI, and and certainly the DNI that I worked for um, in the last decade, was 
coordinating those uh, other agency heads and getting people to come along with ideas and ways to move the intelligence community forward. Um, you know, in addition, the intelligence community is supposed to be and operate in a nonpartisan way. It's really critical for the trust of the intelligence community and for the public's trust in the community that it be viewed as one of the entities in government that is not partisan, that is not the agency that has the president's back or that is doing his political bidding. And to put a person in place who does not have the qualifications, does not have the experience, and is known as a politically polarizing figure is deeply unfair to the workforce of the intelligence community and is really unfair to the public, which needs to have confidence in the agency's work. Yeah, I, I, would, I would just add that yeah. like, I don't have any problem with someone. In fact, I support uh, the president when having people who are loyal to him in positions that are that 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 are important positions in his cabinet. I mean, you don't want people who are disloyal. And and uh, and I think he's had at least in his own mind, he's had some problems with some of his uh, of those people within his administration. And so I have no problem with a loyalist. You know, I, I do have questions. I think a lot of Republicans will have questions about, you know, whether he his demeanor is the right demeanor, whether his experience is the right experience uh, for for this job. And I think it's a legitimate question to have. I don't think you know anyone should. I, I think Republicans will rightly question this choice based on on those on those characteristics and not really focus too much on the whole loyalty issue. Uh, Rick Santorum, appreciate it. Kerry Cordero as well. Thank you. Still to come Thanks. tonight, Attorney, uh, Attorney General Barr and President Trump, the White House saying all is well with their relationship, despite the president's interference in the Roger Stone case. One source tells CNN the opposite. More just ahead. Let's check with Chris, see what he's working on for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? How are you doing, Coop? All this talk about uh, what's going to happen with the Stone case. Obviously, there'll be a sentence tomorrow. It'll be delayed. But we have one of the jurors from that trial with his first reaction to the president basically saying they didn't do their civic duty. Then we have one of the president's big defenders on Capitol Hill uh, coming on to say how these pardons and what just happened with the director of national intelligence is OK for this country. We'll take it on tonight. All right, Chris, see you then. Just a couple minutes from now. Just ahead, Bill Barr's relationship with Donald Trump may be tested again when Roger Stone is sentenced tomorrow, as Chris just mentioned. We'll have more on that when 360 continues. The president today, in a series of retweets, embraced the notion that he should, quote, clean house at the Justice Department. At the same time, the White House insisted the president and Attorney General Barr have a, quote, good relationship. And that's in the wake of a source telling CNN that Barr has considered resigning. So the question is what to make of it all. Joining us is CNN's chief legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Jeffrey Tubin. So, Jeff, Attorney General Barr made it very clear the president's tweets, or at least he said the president's tweets make it impossible for him to do his job. The president just this morning was tweeting again about the Justice Department. But uh, Barr is a toady. I mean, Barr is doing what he's told. You know, he had this one statement to uh, a Pierre Thomas of ABC News that, oh, woe is me. It's hard for me to do my job when the president tweets. But do you see him doing anything? Is he really going to resign? No way. He is doing the president's bidding. He's reviewing all of Mueller's uh, convictions. He is, you know, going outside the norms of how the Justice Department is supposed to behave. Uh, in line with the president's wishes. So I think all this talk of resigning is just a big show to make him look more independent than he actually is. 
And that's what you think it is, a message not only to the public, but to people within the Justice Department to at least give him some cover that he's that he has their back, that he cares about independence. That's it. I mean, it, you know, talk is cheap, you know, leaks about threats to resign, you know, are very uh, have have no cost uh, to him and no impact on the Justice Department. I, I think it's just a show of no consequence. You know, given all the noise around the Stone sentencing and the president continuing to weigh in on what he thinks should happen, is the judge being put in a no-win situation? You know, I think this is one of the most unpredictable, difficult sentencings I've ever come across. Most judges sentence within the sentencing guidelines. They're not required to, but they usually do. And the way the, the guidelines were originally calculated here, it was seven to nine years. That's what set off the president, and that's what made the Justice Department say, well, we're going to leave it all up to the judge. Seven to nine years does seem like an awfully long time. It's an unusual guidelines calculation, as far as I can tell. But the question is, is Judge Amy Berman Jackson going to go outside the guidelines and look like she is caving to the president's demands? I think she's a very conscientious, strong judge. There's a reason why federal judges have lifetime tenure. So I wouldn't be surprised to see her go outside the seven to nine years. But there are a lot of variables here, and I think it's a very unpredictable uh, result tomorrow. And then, of course, I mean, regardless of whatever the sentence is, then there's the possibility of a presidential pardon. I would say the odds of a presidential pardon are close to 100 percent. I mean, if you look at what the president has said about Stone, about uh, Michael, uh, Michael Flynn, his former national security advisor, he has said over and over again he thinks these are unfair prosecutions. Um, the only question is, is it before Election Day or after after Election Day? I, I think the president has these people's backs like he had um, Mike Milken's back, like he had uh, Bernie Carrick's back and Rod Blagojevich's Rod Blagojevich back. Uh, I think regardless of what the sentences are for both Flynn and Stone, they're going home by the end of the year. Um, Jeff Tubin. Jeff, thanks very much. The news continues. I want to head over to uh, Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris.